This new year, it is a new year, 2022. Many of us, when we, when we come to a new year, we are filled with hope and we're filled with excitement and we make resolutions and those resolutions last for hopefully at least the first month. But often, uh, if you're like me, it's the second and you already realize you're behind. <laughs> and what I think can, can happen in New Year's is, is we get off course and, and we get disillusioned and quickly we fill ourselves with disappointment for the new year. Um, what I want to do this morning is, is not focus on necessarily hope or uh, new resolve for you, but what I want to do and what my heart is for our church and my heart for me for this year is that we would just be a people that are marked by prayer. Um, throughout the history of the church, we have seen countless revivals. And that's a good news, and that's a good word. It's not a weird word. It's not something to be scared of. It's something to be excited about, to hope for. And all of them throughout church history, uh, I mean, if we go back to really where like the first revival shows up, it's like Acts chapter uh, one through five, and, and it's marked by prayer. If we go to the Welsh revival, it was two dudes in a barn just started praying. If we go to Korean Pentecost, it was prayer. If we go to the Great Awakening, it was prayer that started it. Prayer and the preaching of the word, but we'll talk about that another day. What I want to do for us this year is I want to set us in the right direction, to set us on course to be a church that's just marked by prayer for the hope of revival, yes, but also just for communion with God. And so what, what we're going to be doing, uh, and what I think is important for us to do over the next two weeks, is, is we're going to just be with Jesus and his words on prayer. We're going to sit with Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, and we are going to ask questions of what God would have us look like as a church and what he would have our prayer lives look like. Here's why I think this matters for us. We will accomplish nothing of value as a people, as a church, as individuals, if we aren't first rooted and grounded in prayer. And so my invitation for us this year in the beginning of the year is to do that. It's just to, to look at Jesus' words, look at his teaching, and then we're going to spend time in prayer together at the end of service today. So if you have your Bible, will you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? We'll be in verses 5 through 10 this morning, and then next week Robert will take verses 11 through 15. So uh, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we aren't walking blindly, not knowing who you are, but you have given us a revelation about yourself, Lord. Thank you for that. May that, may we allow that to hit us, Lord, that you don't just allow us to walk without a guide, Lord, but instead you give us your word so that we may know you. Not just know about you, but that we may know you. And so, Father, this morning I, I do pray. I pray that we would look to your word and we would know you as a God who is Father, a God who is in heaven, a God who is holy. And from those proclamations of who you are, we would step out in confidence, praying for your will to be done and your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. God, we just want to know you more. Pray that you would grant us that in this new year. In your name we pray. Amen. As always, when we come to a book and we haven't been studying it, one of the things I want to do for us is give us a little bit of context. Uh, the book of Matthew is uh, written intentionally with a, a few key points that Matthew's trying to do. He is intentionally trying to draw out how Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the entire biblical story about God and Israel. He's trying to do a, a few key things in doing that. The first is he's going to try to show us, and we see this in the genealogy, how Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David. And then after that, he's really attempting to make it clear to us that, that Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. But one other thing that he's trying to do that sometimes is often hidden but is important for us is that he's trying to show us that Jesus is a new and better Moses. Like Moses, Jesus comes up out of Egypt. If we look to Matthew 2, what, what do we see? After Jesus is born, his family flees to Egypt to run away from Herod, who is trying to kill them. And then Jesus comes up out of Egypt. He passes through the waters of baptism in Matthew chapter 4. And then... Or Matthew chapter 3. And then, uh, just as Moses walked and parted through the Red Sea, then Jesus enters the wilderness for 40 days. And after 40 days in, wilderness, in the wilderness, he goes up onto a mountain and he preaches a sermon. It's almost a parallel of Moses' life in the beginning years of his responsibility as kind of the leader of Israel. And Jesus delivers the sermon on the mount in that first sermon. Now, throughout all this, Matthew is teaching that Jesus is the better Moses who will deliver God's people from slavery, who will give new divine teaching, who will save them from their sins and bring about a new covenant relationship between God and his people. And so Jesus comes in and he steps on the scene and he begins by announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. Now, God's kingdom is, 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 in essence, it's the good news of God's plan to redeem and restore, to reconcile all things 
to himself. And this work, as we, we just learned in Colossians a few months ago, happens through Jesus, the, the fullness of God. He's the image of the invisible God who takes on the sins of the world and through his blood shed on the cross makes peace with God. This Jesus, who we, who we know reconciles us to God, comes to confront evil and to restore God's rule and reign over the whole world. And he does this by creating a new covenant people who are covered by his blood, who are brought into relationship with God. And it's these covenant people who will follow him, obey his teachings, and live under his rule. And through that, through this group of followers, heaven is just going to be made known and present on earth. So Jesus begins to create and, and cultivate this group of followers. He begins healing people in Matthew chapter 4, and they all start to follow him. And so he sits them down on this mountain, and he gives them a teaching. He takes his followers to a, a hillside, again, paralleling, uh, paralleling Moses, and he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to, to talk about a few things. He talks about life in the kingdom, he immediately, we're going to notice if we read the Sermon on the Mount, that it's, it's radically different from any other teachings of the world. Immediately, we will notice that this kingdom Jesus is preaching about is an upside-down kingdom. It's different. Jesus covers a ton in this sermon, and I'm not going to get to it all today, but I'm actually going to preach it later this year, and so you can just sit tight and come back for that. Um, but to tie all of that context together, we, we want to look at Moses, and how, what does this have to do with prayer? Well, if we were to go back to the Old Testament, we would see something really key in the life of Moses. Moses is actually the person who intercedes and talks to God on behalf of the people. Now, this is a work that Jesus is still doing now, which we don't have time to get into. It's a glorious work. But what is really important about this is instead of Jesus saying, I'm going to talk to God for you, he teaches the people how to talk to God for themselves. So Jesus not only shows up on the scene and does something similar to Moses, but he actually does something better than Moses. He gives us access to the throne room. And so when we come to this section on prayer, Jesus begins to teach us that prayer is not simply a religious act. It's actually a conversation that's happening with our Father. And he teaches us that this prayer in the kingdom looks different than prayer elsewhere. It's not something we see in the ways of this world. Novelist Anne Lamott, she sums up her prayer life like this. She says, my prayer life is simply, thank you, thank you, thank you. Help me, help me, help me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that's many of our prayer lives. It's, it's, we say thank you, you know, three times a day for our meal, and then we ask for help when we need it. And when we've messed up, we make sure we ask for more help. But Jesus is inviting us into something different in this passage. It's a different type of prayer that, that looks differently and acts differently than what prayer in other religions would look like. And so here is what Jesus tells us. This is how you should pray. But before he tells us how we should pray, he tells us how we shouldn't pray. Verse 5, he says, when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites. And he gives us uh, the hypocrites, and then there's also the Gentiles a little further, further down. So there's two ways that Jesus does not want us to pray as followers in this new covenant community. 
The first is not like the hypocrites, and the second is not like the Gentiles. So let's break those two down, the hypocrites. This specific category of people is a group of people that prays to be seen by others. It's a, a group of people that would pray in public with a lot of words and a lot of big words so that other people would see them and think, wow, that is a holy individual. I should really look at that person. He is very spiritual. Now, this is part of a much larger section of, of Jesus pointing out that true spirituality is not spirituality that's seen on behalf of reputation. Spirituality that is true spirituality is spirituality that takes place even in secret. So here's what I want to do real quick. I want to uh, contrast what Jesus says here. He talks about uh, those who are spiritual in the public square, and then he talks about those who are spiritual, and he uses this, uh, this term of a prayer secret room. And so, you know, you, you've probably met somebody who actually, like, has a secret room where they go pray, and I'm not knocking that. I think that's an awesome thing if you have that, but if you know that they have a secret room that they pray, I, I don't know if it's secret as they were trying to make it. Um, and then, so you have these people who, who have secret rooms, and then you have people who are in the public square. And the point that Jesus is trying to bring out is contrast. Now, don't take this literally and go home and clean out your smallest closet or your largest closet and, you know, light candles. That's not what Jesus is advocating for here. What he's doing is he's contrasting something. The call is to pray not for what people will give you or what will be seen by people. The call is to pray because it's where your heart's at. Let me show you how I know this. Right before this section, he talks about giving to the needy. And the literary device that he uses, it's a metaphor. He says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Your right hand knows nothing. So if we take it literally, we would say that Jesus thinks that your hand knows something and your hand has a brain of itself. That's not what he's, he's trying to encourage us into a direction of thinking that is not just doing it for the sake of doing it or doing it for the sake of being seen. He's inviting us into contrast, the public showing off with a private room. The posture of our hearts in prayer matters. It, it should not to be, be seen by other people. It's to be seen by God. That's the, the purpose of prayer. The second uh, individual group that he calls out is the Gentiles, and he says, don't pray like these people either. So, <coughs> excuse me, the Gentiles were anyone that was not Jewish. So anybody that was not a Jew at that time, that was a Gentile. It was somebody who worshipped or followed another god. It was those of other religions at the time that, that had this belief that if they said enough, or mention the right combinations of gods, then surely one of those gods would hear them, and maybe they'd get what they want. They didn't know what God wants or who God is, and so they just throw it at the wall and just see what sticks. And Jesus is inviting us, and he's saying, don't be like them either, because your Father knows what you need. In these two specific areas of he's telling us ways not to pray, there's a reason behind it, and it's answered in the first line of the way that we are called to pray. <laughs> so two ways th that we're not to pray 
is as hypocrites who don't know God as Father. So there's an impersonal, works-based approach to their relationship with God. It's about what they can do and bring to the table, and so they need constant validation from others because they don't know God. They just know about Him. And the second way is not to do so as the Gentiles who don't know God at all. They don't know who He is or, or what He's like. They don't know He's Father, but they also don't know that He's in heaven. They're not quite sure where He is or even which one of all the various gods He is. Those are the two ways not to pray. Don't pray as one who doesn't know God and don't pray as one who knows nothing about God. And then we get into our prayer. And what I'd like to suggest is that two of the main reasons that you and I don't pray or that we don't have a right relationship to prayer is because we don't see God as Father or we don't see God as in heaven in these first two lines. Let's talk about that first one, God as Father. Jesus tells us, and he, he invites us, he says, pray then like this. I think he means that. This is how we should pray. Like, I don't think it's just a suggestion. I think he's like, no, pray like this. Let this pattern shape your prayers. Pray then like this. And he tells us to step into prayer claiming who God is. God is our Father. That is the, the first thing that he invites us to do in our prayer and, and the first way that he leads us in our prayer. Now, <clears throat> here's where we have trouble with this. Some of us, we have a picture of a father who was there for us, present, loved us deeply, cared for us, made sure that, that we were um, fought for and, and he pursued us and loved us and taught us well. And, and some of us have that view of a father, but I know that for many of us, our earthly father has deeply shaped the way that we understand and relate to God as father. And many of us in this room don't have a view of a father that would be a good view of a father. And so maybe you're in here this morning and your father was unhealthy, unhealthily controlled by emotions. And, and so you hear father and, and you just picture your own dad who's instilled feelings of dis instability and anxiety into the home. So you just kind of assume that God will only be there for you if he's feeling up to it. But he's volatile and so at any time and any moment anything could change. It's better just to clear a path and do whatever uh, you can to appease his emotions. Maybe that's your view of father. Or maybe uh, your father was just very headstrong and, and driven. And so you hear father and you think of your dad who stayed busy trying to perfect everything and everyone around you. And you just felt like you couldn't bother him. And so if you did, there would just be a long list of things you weren't already accomplishing. And so you assume this is exactly what God is feeling towards you. Maybe your father was passive. And, and so you hear father and you think, of your dad who avoids dealing with anything upsetting. And so you feel like that's probably how God is. He just avoids my pain. He minimizes it. He doesn't really care about my problems or the things I'm going through. He just doesn't work righteously or justly. He just kind of is out in the universe doing his own thing and I don't really want to bother him. Maybe your father rejected you. And so you hear father and you think of your dad who was withdrawn and dismissive and derogatory. And so to come to him is to expect that God is always just disappointed with you, always frustrated with you, angry with you. He's just always looking for the things in you that he can point out to tear you down. Or maybe your father wasn't present at all. 
And so you, your father, and you think of your dad who just wasn't ever there. You didn't really know him. You knew he existed, but you didn't really care to ever find out more about him because he didn't care to find out more about you. So you wonder if maybe that's how God treats you, if God's even there, even if he's listening. It's important for us to recognize that all of us come to this concept of father with a loaded term and a lot of understanding of what that is behind the word. And so we have to redefine when, when Jesus tells us, come to God as your father, we have to shed some of the baggage with that so that we can actually understand what it means that God is our father. Because for some of us, that's good news. But for most of us, it's not. So what is a, a biblical view of God as father? I think this matters. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount um, is acting in some senses for us as an older brother where he is talking to us and telling us about who his father is and who our father is. 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about Jesus, or he talks about God being father. 17 times. This is the primary way that we in the kingdom are to relate to God as our father. What does that mean? What does it biblically mean for us that God is our father? <coughs> In 2 Corinthians 1.3, we see that God is a father of mercies and comfort. This is, I think, something that's really important for us to get. If we were to read through the entire uh, Old Testament, we'd see that God is provoked to a few things. He's provoked to anger. He is provoked to wrath. He is provoked to justice. You know what we never see him provoked to? Love, mercy, <laughs> comfort care. He doesn't need to be provoked to those things because it's who he is. Who he is is a God of love, a God of mercy. It is because he is those things that he then is provoked to wrath and to anger. So who God is, is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of comfort. Never do we see him having to be provoked to love or mercy. It's just his very heart for sinners who collapse into the arms of grace to lavish on them mercy, love, and forgiveness. Like, all right, we don't have time to talk about the entirety of the Trinity, but this is something that's really important for us. Eternally, God the Father has been loving God the Son eternally. Like it is natural for him to overwhelm with love for the Son. And so when Jesus comes into this place and he invites us to relate to God as Father, he's inviting us to relate to God as Father as he relates to God as Father. Eternally pleased. What does it say in Matthew chapter three? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus inviting us into this covenant community to be defined because he is the son of God. We now, as those who come to belief in him, are called sons and daughters of God. We look to God as father and we now reciprocate that same loving relationship that God the father has with God the son. That's important. That shapes the way that we view him. 
In, in John 14, um, one of the disciples named Philip, he asks Jesus to show the disciples the Father. And so Jesus responds, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Hebrews 1.3, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When we see Jesus, we're seeing God. When we see who Jesus is, we're getting a picture of who God is. Jesus is the embodiment of who God is. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. In him, we see heaven's eternal heart walking around on two legs in space and time. And when we see the heart of Christ, we are seeing the very compassion and tenderness of who God himself most deeply is. The heart of Christ is that he is gentle and lowly, and that is who the Father is, because Jesus is a perfect image of the Father. John Flavel, one of my favorite Puritans, says this. He says, remember, oh, this is good, remember that this God, in whose hand are all creatures, is your Father, and he is much more tender to you than you are or even can be to yourself. This is such an important view that we, we have to have of who God is as Father. So many of us, we will, we will think that God's just angry and then Jesus is the loving one and Jesus appeases, but it's for God so loved the world. Like God himself is a God who loves and because of that, he initiates a plan where he sends his son. It is not as if God was like, ah, I'm going to go get these people and Jesus just stepped in the way. No, God's wrath needed to be satisfied. And so he himself, being a God of love who had been provoked to wrath because sin had been endangering his children and his creation, he sets a plan in motion so that his wrath can be satisfied because a holy God cannot be near something unholy. And so he sets a plan in motion to pay the penalty of our sins. And not only that, but his own son takes it on himself. That's what God means when he says God as father is a God who pursues his children who is filled with mercy for his children, who is angered when things endanger his children, and who disciplines his children because he loves them. I, like, that's fundamental to our understanding of who God is. I think sometimes we, we will, you know, read the Old Testament, read stories of exile, and we'll think, oh, look, look how God is just so angry. And yet, what do we see every time after God disciplines his children? They come back to him. And, and what God is inviting us into is to recognize that to be in a place of understanding that God is our father and that he loves us is to be in the best place we could possibly be. And so, what we want to make sure that we do here with, with this specific passage, when Jesus invites us to say that in our prayer we are to relate to God as our Father, is that even if we have a poor view of who that is because of our own earthly fathers, we are supposed to shed those views and look towards the truth of Scripture and say, no, this is who Jesus is. 
This is who God is. And because this is who God is, I can relate to him as father. It's fundamental to our understanding of who God is and, and to our prayer to get this. The, the next term that he uses is he says, in heaven. Now, this is, this is a loaded term. Many of us have different ideas of heaven. Maybe yours is a Hallmark greeting card, or, or maybe you're just like, it's some ethereal thing that I just can't figure out. But what, what it means that God is in heaven is that he is in complete control. God is in complete control. Praying to God in heaven is declaring that he's in the oval office of the universe. Telling God where he is in heaven speaks to a recognition of his power. So if we look at Psalm 2, the nations rage and the people plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. And what is, what is happening there is that Jesus, the Lord who sits on his throne, God who sits on his throne, looks at them and he laughs. Their power is a literal joke to him compared to his power. He is in the place of actual power. Him being in heaven means that he is not bound by the limits that you and I are bound by. Anytime we pray, the mess that we find ourselves in is not a mess to God. Like he is not bound by the limits of our frail human bodies and our frail human conceptions of what's possible. He is wholly other, wholly outside of that, and he is in heaven, and because of that, he's not bound by our limitations. And so when we pray to him, we can come to him, and we don't have to wonder if God can, or if he's too busy, or if he's overwhelmed, or if he's feeling a little anxiety that day. No, he's not bound by those limitations. He is strong enough, and he is capable because he is God, our Father, who loves us and who holds all the power. We can say he's in heaven, he's in control. You see, if we don't believe that God is Father and we don't believe that God is in heaven, we won't come to him when we've sinned because we don't believe that he's actually going to pick us up and clean us off. We believe that he's going to be mad at us or frustrated at us, a dictator on his throne that just wants to get rid of us every time we've failed. So we won't come to him when we failed. We won't come to him when we are in need. We won't look to him for wisdom and guidance on the best paths for our life. Instead, we'll dig deeper. We'll look inward. We'll try to make it happen for ourselves because we believed lies about who God is and we believed lies about who we are. Let me give an example. Um, it's fresh in my mind because I'm watching my niece learn how to walk this last week. But I remember when my son was learning how to walk and as he would walk and he would stand up and he would start to come towards me and he would fall, his direct response was not to cower in shame, but it was to cry for me. Why? Because he knew that what happened in that moment was not something he could solve himself. He just needed an outside individual to come help him, specifically the dad who cares for him. Now, if my son cried and felt shame and went in the opposite direction, I'm a terrible father because <laughs> I would have shamed him into that moment. That's not who God is. 
And now, as, as my son is a toddler and he's learning the um, special, special act of defiance, <laughs> there's, there's, there's two pieces of me that comes out. One is, is reasonableness. I'm going to try and reason with my child, which never works. Um, I'm going to try and reason with him and help him to understand the, the decisions that he's making. But there's another piece of me that comes out specifically when he's defiant and it's leading to his own danger. So if we have a fire pit going in the backyard and my son's defiance is leading him to walk towards that fire pit, I guarantee you I'm not going to try and reason him out of that in that moment. Because my son would be in the fire. I'm going to step in. I'm going to be firmer. I'm going to be a little bit more strong with him because his defiance now is not just a simple act of defiance. It's a simple act of defiance that's leading him towards danger. That is exactly, and I'm not trying to say that I'm, I'm God here. I had a great father, and so because of that, I feel like I know these things. But, like, that is exactly who God is. God is, is stepping in lovingly and tenderly, inviting us to walk towards him. And when we fall and we fail, he is not shaming us. He is running towards us and picking us up in his arms and encouraging us to try again. But then there are moments when we defy and sin and he is after us. Why? Because he cares for us. And he invites us to come back to him and to look to him. But if we don't see him as our father and we don't see him as in heaven, we don't see him as good, we don't see him as loving, we don't see him as caring, then we will not respond in those moments where we failed or in those moments where we've sinned by looking to him and coming to him. The next phrase that, that we see is, hallowed be your name. And I can guarantee none of you this week were like, ah, oh, unless you prayed this prayer. I love the word hallowed. It's just my favorite. Like we don't usually use that word in English, but the reason it still shows up in more modern translations is because it's just like the best possible word that we have for this. It's, it's just a word that communicates that he is just holy other than and completely and perfectly holy all at the same time. There is nothing like him and no one like him. There never will be and there never has been. He is wholly other. But he's also holy. Now, we've talked about that word before. It means, it means set apart. But I think a word that is important to us, uh, when, we, when we use the word holy, we're often referring to something that's that's almost sacred and, and perfect and, and without sin. And, and so when we look at God as holy, here's what we know for a fact about him, that he is completely perfect and completely holy, and he is nothing like anything we've ever seen before. Now, that statement that he is holy, that he's completely perfect, right? So uh, certain translations have said, be holy as your heavenly father is holy, or be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That means that God cannot sin, which means that God cannot sin against you. And so our Father who is in heaven, 
cannot sin against you. Perfectly holy, to be revered, yes, but also to be reminded that he is not a God who is sitting up there just trying to make your life miserable because it's fun for him. Perfectly holy. And then we move into this next phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we got to be quick here because I want us to spend some time in prayer together. But um, many of us have a view like heaven's up here and earth is down here. And then Jesus comes down to give us a road to get up. And so it's like this idea like, oh, well, earth is just pretty much completely fractured and broken and it's never really going to be any better. So we're just going to, we're going to one day get to heaven and it'll be all be fine. And we'll just watch as the earth is completely destroyed and thrown out uh, with the bathwater. No, that's not accurately what's happening. Um, What is taking place is in Jesus, heaven is breaking through here on earth. Like, Jesus begins to bring heaven down to earth. And as he reaches out and as he uh, begins to touch and, and, and develop this community of covenant members, uh, they are all now becoming pictures of the living God here on this earth. And what's happening is heaven is just continuing to crash down into earth until one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Heaven will be made completely new, all things restored, because heaven is breaking through, and it's breaking through in this community of people who he is saving. So when we come to this phrase in praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are inviting God here now to do what only he can do, to continue heaven breaking through, to continue saving people, to continue seeing his will done here on earth as it is in heaven, as he is in the oval office of the universe in heaven. We're asking him, be in the oval office of the universe of my life. Do what only you can do. Continue to break through, not only in the world, but also in my own heart, in our own hearts as a people. So my question for us this morning is that if God is the Father who we've talked about him being, if he indeed is in heaven, if he is completely holy, why would we not confidently step out praying this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And praying to a God that we know and who knows us should always lead to a confident petition for him to continue breaking through in our world. So here's what I want to do for the next 10 minutes or so. I'm going to guide us through prayer. Through We're just going to talk about God as Father for a second. We are going to, we're going to pray to him in heaven, we're going to be reminded of his holiness, his perfection, his inability to sin against us, to sin at all. And then from a confident position of knowing who he is, knowing where he is, and knowing what he's like, we're going to invite his kingdom to break through in our lives and to break through in our church and to break through in our city. 
what my hope is for our church and for my life is that our prayer this year would be that we would become like Jesus. And the way that we do that is by inviting the kingdom to break through. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. I would invite you all to respond in this time by, by taking a moment to actually pray. I'm, I'm going to prompt us, and then there's just going to be some silence for a minute. And, and it is good for us to pray to this God, to be, to be known and to know who he is. So... Heavenly Father, we, man, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for who you are as a father. I pray that you would help us to shed the baggage of the false views of you as Father that we have. And that we, we would lean wholeheartedly into who you are, a God who has been eternally loving the Son. So this time, I, I just pray, Lord, reveal to us who you are and I want to invite you in this room this morning, those of you who are praying, to um, just ask God to reveal himself to you afresh as Father. And maybe you don't, um, at this point in time, believe that that's who he is or who he could be. And I just pray that you would just step out in that proclamation of faith and then just say, Our Father that that's who he is. Our Father in heaven. Lord, I confess that there are many times where I don't come in prayer because I feel like I have the pieces of the puzzle figured out. I confess that there are many times where I don't come in prayer because I believe that I don't have need. And Lord, that is just a, a laughable matter. Lord, at this point in time, I pray that we would recognize who you are, who, who you are and where your power lies. Our mess is not your mess. You are not bound by our frailties, Lord. For those of us here who have given up believing that you have the power to change our circumstances, Lord, I do pray that we would confidently step out now here in prayer saying, Our Father in heaven.
I want you to, to invite you all to take this moment just to think through circumstances in your life where you believe that God is, is not capable of working. And just to speak confidently that prayer that he is in heaven. He holds it all together. Father in heaven, holy, hallowed be your name. Lord, we want to come to you with a reverence, knowing that there is, there is nothing on this earth that is like you. There has never been, nor there will ever be a God like you. <laughs> And so, God, we look to you as, as the one and the only, the true God, immortal, invisible, made visible in Jesus Christ, as a God who is perfect, who rules righteously and judges justly. And we want to recognize that you are incapable of sinning. And because of that, Lord, you are incapable of sinning against us. And so when we come to you and we pray to you, our Father who is in heaven, and it doesn't seem like you answer, that is clear and present evidence that you know what you're doing. May we look to you, Lord, those of us who are discouraged in our prayers right now, those who are entering into 2022 with as much pessimism as we had in 2021, those of us who are entering into 2022 discouraged and doubting and, and hurt and feeling like you've forsaken us, Lord, may we remember that you are holy. You are not afraid of where our hearts are at. You are not afraid of our brokenness, Lord, and yet at the same time, you invite us to remember this truth that you are holy, you are sinless, you are worthy of our worship. So I want to invite you in this room to spend a moment just in worship of who God is and his holiness and reminding that he cannot sin against you, that he is your father, that he is in heaven and that he is holy. Lord, with these truths spoken about who you are, we now petition you. Let your kingdom come.
May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we desire that you would break through. Lord, I desire for my own self that I would look more like you, that I would see your kingdom come in my life. That your, your breakthrough would happen in this church, Lord, that we would see your kingdom come here and now. That your kingdom and your will would be done in our city, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven, on, in El Paso as it is in heaven, in Jesus' chapel as it is in heaven, Lord, in my life as it is in heaven. I want to invite you at this time to invite the Lord to do a work in your life, in your home, in your family, in your church, in your city, in your workplace. You would all stand with me. The worship team would join me. I would like to end our time today just by reciting the beginning of that prayer together. Um, I think we all know it. We might have some different versions memorized, and if so, that's okay. Um, but let us say that together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let us worship.